When we think about hippies, we probably think about long-haired, beautiful people on the west coast of America, or possibly here in London in the swinging 60s. I don't know about you, but I don't think usually of the Soviet Union. Could there have been hippies in the Soviet Union? Was that even possible? In today's episode, we're going to find out if it was. This is the Bureau of Lost Culture. I'm Stephen Coates. The Bureau of Lost Culture is dedicated to unearthing digging up strange, half-forgotten, half-remembered, lost countercultural stories. And in this episode, I meet with Teria Tomitsu, the Estonian film director. Hello, Teria. Hi. Now, the reason we're here today, Teria, is because you are in London to talk about your amazing documentary, Soviet Hippies, right? That's right. (laughs) And the reason we're interested in it, of course, I mean, amongst other things, this is a show about counterculture, and your film really is about the counterculture, the hippie counterculture of the mid to late 60s and 70s and onward in the Soviet Union. Yes, basically the hippie movement began as a reaction to the Western hippie movement, so it was in the late 60s. So the earliest music that is in the movie is from 1970. And some songs were perhaps written by the musicians in late 60s and then they were recorded maybe in 76 when they finally had the chance to record something. But basically the movement began 66, 67, the first hippies, and then it really went up uh, to the 69. Then it became politicized by the authorities. The KGB was after them around 70, 71. And then the movement was pushed underground. And then there was another kind of revival or or when it really exploded into a subculture in its own right, that was in the end of the 70s. See, it's interesting for us because I think for most people listening is that I don't think any idea that there was a hippie movement in the Soviet Union. I mean, and of course your film maybe is, that's why you've made it. It was really a kind of invisible history from this side of what was the Iron Curtain. I think this film that you've made is probably the first film that's been made about it. Is that right? I think there has been uh, some uh, TV reportages made in Russia, but basically it's the first uh, proper film that explores this uh, movement in depth. And uh, I was working on that for six years. And even I didn't know that the hippies existed. I thought that the film's going to be about this few eccentric eccentric individuals who were young in the 60s and who were maybe, you know, doing some hippish stuff. But uh, I had to begin with the research and my other hat is in anthropology. So I used my anthropologist uh, skills of analysis and ethnology and uh, basically oral, oral history approach because there was no footprint on the official Soviet media about the hippies, of course. When we were researching the uh, story of the X-ray records made in the Cold War, you know, the bone records, um, it was the same thing, really. The, all the official documentation about it obviously was written by the state so it was propaganda really the way to collect that story the way that we were able to collect it to write the book was the same method really it's oral history we had to interview people find people who'd been around uh, and and do it and you do that i mean the film is about that it follows their their trajectory i think that just to go back to that thing about us in the west or even possibly you in Estonia, not knowing really that there was a hippie movement. That for us is part of this whole invisibility of the Soviet Union. You know, all sorts of things went on in the Soviet Union that we remain still unaware of. And I think maybe we can just explain it a little bit, because you call it Soviet hippies, but really, as far as I could tell in the documentary, it concentrates mainly on Estonia and on Western Russia, is that right? I mean, did did into the Soviet Union, of course, twenty two states. Was there a hippie movement elsewhere? I mean, in in the eastern states and in those you know those distant places from Moscow and Leningrad and, and Estonia. Yes, of course. Um, the what we concentrated were Estonia, Ukraine, Ukraine, and then Russia as far as it goes through Petersburg, Moscow, which were the very, very central for the movement, and also Smolensk, apparently. So these were the shooting sites and mainly also for the production issue and not only financial, but also conceptual, because uh, otherwise it would also 
you know, become a very, very different story if you cannot tie all these people somehow together. And of course, the the most active or the first hippies were in in the, in these uh, main uh, uh, Soviet cities and especially the eastern part, which was much more exposed to the Western influences. And Estonia, like in Estonia, there was also access to Finnish television, and that was an open window to the world, and that also uh, created this distinctive music scene at there. But of course, the, when the hippies developed their network, um, uh, then by the late 70s, it was really like a network across the Soviet Union. And then there were uh, hippies also as far as Ufa and and and, uh, and even in the Far East. Um, perhaps there were, they had their so- small circuits and then maybe they traveled to meet others in Moscow. And in Moscow, there was like a subcultural movement as such. So uh, I think that is the most interesting din- thing that the hippie movement um, grew into was this network of people who were exchanging addresses and names and phone numbers of other hippies. One of the most uh, faci- well, the many fascinating things in the film is this kind of proto version of Facebook that they've got going, this sort of written book, haven't they, which lists, you know, if you turn up in this city, uh, this is the, these are the people to contact if you want somewhere to crash, as they would have said in the, in the hippie times. And, and, and it was this sort of wonderful thing, this directory, this sort of hippie directory, wasn't it? Yeah, I, I have even came to think of it as a kind of couchsurfing. Mm. But that was before internet. But couchsurfing also is based that you have a profile and then you give recommendations to each other mm. and then you can travel to another city and you can have a free accommodation and uh, ideally friends. But uh, that was then in the Soviet era without internet. So it was very, you know, you, you had to really write down the names and others and you have to give a recommendation. You had to know somebody who knows that person that you're trusted into the system. And they really call themselves Sistema, which translates as system. So they really created this alternative system that essentially made them feel free. Um, let's listen to a little bit of music. There's a lot of music in the film. Uh, and of course, you know, we're going to talk about who made it and how and when it came out uh, in a little while. But let's just listen to this to begin with. That's Margan Sen Ozemi, is that how you pronounce it? Yes, and that's actually the only song in the movie that is technically not from the Soviet Union. Ah. So this is from Czech Republic, Czechoslovakia at the time. Uh, but I, I just personally really love that song uh, for the ages, ages before I got to research uh, Soviet hippies. And uh, the song is, uh, the title of the song says, Dream of the World, Dream About the World. So in, in a way, this song is, holds a promise to me. Uh, at least when I listen to it, I feel this promise of another kind of world, another world order, another way of being. And that was very much the same to the Soviet hippies that they wanted to, they were craving for this imaginary elsewhere, for this different kind of being where people would be kind and nice and loving and wild. Uh, that's not what they wanted. So, <laughs> right, not so different than, of course, than the hippie dream in the West, of course. And uh, yes. I mean, obviously, we're in, we're in London now and in the UK, uh, you know, uh, uh, the impression I get about the hippie movement here was that this is a small country. 
the UK. So the notion of an elsewhere was a bit more difficult and it seemed to be situated in some fairyland or something. Whereas, of course, in America... There was a West. There was, the, you know, there's the, like like in the Soviet Union, these vast dif- distances that, you know, you could set off on these journeys. And journeys are part of the thing in the in your film, isn't it? And that track, it is very dreamlike. It's very innocent and pure, isn't it? It's that side of the of the hippie dream, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. In the movie, there's also the scene when when people are talking that they 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 that they couldn't even describe it with words what it felt, but there was this contagious feeling that mm. they shared, and um, many people I've spoken to who were attending some of the first psychedelic rock geeks, for example in Tallinn, they still remember it with very profound sentiments. And think of it: if you are living in a country where all you been listening to is either the the Soviet uh, official uh, music or propaganda and then some beat bands then this psychedelic uh, uh, fuzzy sound it really came like this strange vibration let's just back up a bit so how did this um, was music the way that these values this hippie dream was communicated from the West I mean uh, how did they the people who became hippies in Estonia and in, in Russia and in Ukraine, how did they know about this hippie movement in the West? Exactly, through music. Through music. And uh, the main, the big thing was how to tune your radio on a different wavelength. And then you could listen to a radio such as Radio Luxembourg. The Radio Luxembourg was really legendary among these radio stations, but also there were Radio Free Europe, uh, uh, some Swedish channels, some Finnish channels. And so this really allowed to hear all these great hippie hits from UK, from United States, and uh, and that was the source of inspiration. They didn't understand the lyrics, but they just heard this unknown, crazy, mesmerizing sound. And the sound really, like one of the protagonists says, that it made you, made you shake, like the strange vibration. And um, and then, of course, the, the Western records became a big thing uh, for them. They were very expensive, but very often they were bought uh, among a group of friends or if somebody had a record then it was borrowed to others who were re-recording it to real to real tapes and then they were exchanged and then re-recorded again and again so the quality reduced amazingly and those who had records they were the the popular guys yeah i mean uh, we we share a a a friendship i suppose uh, for filmic friendship with koyu vasin he's in uh, your film, and he was in our film actually, Call Your Vassin for people who don't know him, self-styled The Beatles Guy. I mean, he was known until his death fairly recently as The Beatles Guy, number one Beatles fan. But when we met uh, Collier and I asked him, you know, because he sat there sur- in, in, his, in the Temple of John Lennon, the Temple of Love, you know, playing Beatles music, surrounded by, uh, you know, hundreds if not thousands of Beatles-related objects. And I said to him, well, Cole, you know, what, what did the Beatles mean to you? You know, what was it about the music? And he said, it was just one word, freedom. Something about that music spoke to him as a young guy in the greyness of Leningrad sort of spoke across the Iron Curtain and set him on fire in some way. And as you know, he, he, he remained on fire until sadly he committed suicide last year. And uh, uh, there was so it was the music that mainly transmitted the message. And the other values of hippiedom, the clothes, the long hair, you know, the, the drugs, the spiritualism, that was also leaking through those somehow, right? Yes, exactly. And you managed to get some uh, access to music um, journals, magazines. Uh, you had images that came along with uh, records, uh, the LPs. So like these were like these small little pieces of information, but they were so potent. They were mm. so big. And, they were, and of course, it, it created this mimicry of style, long hair, jeans, uh, trying to make your uh, clothes more colorful. You had to maybe rip your curtains off and, and, and s- make yourself a pair of wide, uh, colorful um, bell buttons. Yeah, flared trousers. Yeah, the obligatory uniform yes. of the hippie generation. Also, uh, you said in an article which you wrote about drugs in, in that time, which is also fascinating, 
Um, you talk about Stanislav Grof, uh, the psychiatrist, coming to uh, uh, Russia in the early 60s, 1964, bringing with him 300 ampules of LSD, uh, which obviously was not illegal because nobody knew what it was at the time, and he, he sort of gave that to university students and stuff, didn't he? And that seems to have, according to your article anyway, seems to have also been the seed of a kind of change of consciousness which then spread from them outwards. Is that right? Exactly. And it's it's just incredible. I, I heard about it first. I didn't believe it. And then I met Stanislav Krof myself. I asked him myself and he said that story. And and of course, he didn't want to draw strong conclusion of it. But mm. he said that a couple of years later, somebody else, some of his, his colleagues went to St. Petersburg and realized that the whole atmosphere in the campus have changed. People are reading Helmer Nessen or suddenly interested in yoga and meditation. So it was a combination of things then, coming through music mainly, maybe some images from magazines and books, and then this change of consciousness coming through, partly through maybe psychoactive drugs. And Well, actually also in the late 60s, it's, it's incredible, but the Soviet media, official media, was publishing some uh, articles how they generate all the Western youth. Mm. They are taking the strange drugs, LSD, is it the gateway to heaven or hell? Mm. These kind of titles. But that was, again, before the movement was politicized. Mm. And that, but of course, like the youth were reading it as a source of inspiration. Of course, they knew that, you know, they don't care whether it's a, it's a, it's a gateway to hell or heaven, but it's kind of cool, like the hippies are doing it. But I mean, the same articles were being written here. I mean, and in America, you know, the press was full of, you know, st- horror stories of, you know, people thinking that they're an orange when they're on LSD and peeling themselves and, you know, these l- ludicrous stories, uh, scare stories, actually. And of course, you know, right the way back to the 50s, they've been, you know, in Soviet Union and in the West, they've been, they've been writing s- stories in the official press which were denigrating teenagers, you know, and uh, young people and listening to this awful music and stuff. That was, that was always going on, wasn't it, both in Soviet Union and here. I suppose the thing which is different for us to, uh, to understand and watching your movie and really struck me, actually, is that we in the UK or in the US, there was not a repressive regime, Right. So however disapproved of you might be uh, for wearing flared jeans or growing your hair or trying out different substances before they became illegal, um, you weren't much at risk of, you know, arrest and imprisonment, right? But of course, in the Soviet Union, you were, right? It was much more risky in a way, wasn't it, to yeah. be different? That is that is the main difference. Yeah. One of the main differences is also that the Soviet hippies generally didn't have LSD around, right. um, which was, again, very characteristic for the Western hippie movement. But uh, the other one is really that being a hippie was a choice for life uh, mm. that came with all the risks that meant that if you meet cops on your way, there's about 50-50 chance that you're going to get arrested. Or if you are you cross the red line, if you say something ideological or insult the regime, then you might be treated really, very badly in a, in a psychiatric hospital. And, um, uh, and basically, like, if you were already a hippie, there was no easy return to the normal life. Let's say at some point you thought that, okay, maybe I still want to have a career or have, I don't know, family or benefits or something, or like travel abroad. Like all these things, Mm. all the benefits uh, you got only when you were part of the Komsomol. And of course, no hippie wanted to join the Komsomol. Komsomol being the communist youth movement. So to get on, you really had to join that and be a member of the party. So what you're saying is that once you'd stepped outside that, particularly if you'd got some form by having been arrested or having your name noted down, then there was no way back. Yeah, very, very, of course, like um, like the hippie movement itself, like we could describe or think of it as a like a rhizomatic movement. There were those who were like genuinely radically hippies who were really real dropouts from the Soviet mainstream society. And then there were those, like for example, in Estonia, we can say that there were those who were, let's say, they were following the hippie ideals, but they, at some point, let's say they were the first generation of hippies in the 60s, they were like fooling around for some couple of years and then they realized that oh this thing got too dangerous then they find a way in a fine uh, line between the official and unofficial let's say they were they find a way to be musicians composers artists designers something like that and then maybe in their heart they were hippies but they didn't show it off they didn't follow the sistema traveling but they were kind of sometimes doing some underground art exhibitions or things like that, but then they still had like a normal 
uh, career and they were, of course, very careful all the time and, and sometimes took risks, sometimes didn't. Yeah, so not so different here, actually, too. There's the h- hardcore people who sort of, you know, really turned on, tuned in and dropped out. And then there's the people who sort of were halfway in and were able to sort of step back and become successful in other, some other ways, right? Um, I mean, but there were some very poignant scenes in your film, um, which reminded me again of Kolyavasin. I remember he told us that he was on a <clears throat> on the platform of a train station uh, once and two guys, I think, came up to him and, and sort of, you know, grabbed hold of his hair and dragged him along the platform by his hair. And these were not, uh, you know, comsomal youth police. These were ordinary people. And I think that, you know, you make this point, um, and we came across this too with regard to an earlier generation of, like, youth culture with the Stilagi, you know, the, 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 the people who dressed up in sort of American fashions in the late 50s and early 60s. It wasn't just the kind of the, the authorities that, were, that hated them. There was a lot of the kind of ordinary people, possibly through indoctrination, also sort of looked down at them and spat on them, wasn't it? It wasn't just a, and at the officials. Yeah, of course. Because, like, the, the issue was a moral issue. Mm. It was very much about the purity and danger, to, to, to cite Mary Douglas famously. So so it was, it was really that these kids were considered, like, you know, degenerate, dangerous for the societal well-being, uh, poisoned by the Western influences. And and uh, also there were, let's say there were like some criminals who had some issue with the cops. And then the cops said that, well, if you just kind of, you know, take care of the hairy fellows, it's going to be fine. And then this, uh-huh. this criminal kind of uh, tough guys were also cutting the hair of the hippies in, in some instances. And, and of course, there were like bus driver who didn't want to pick up a girl who was having a hippie skirt or, or, a, or, a, or a bag or like strange clothing. And then there were, of course, like these uh, men were like shouting, Caesars, 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 when some hippies were entering a bar. So there were, of course, these incidents is also coming from the mainstream culture. And it's very much tied to this thing, like what is a proper way of being and what is a decadent Dirty. Which is the when propaganda has really been successful, isn't it? When you can turn a population upon itself, when you don't have to police it um, yourself, because they're the common people are policing it for you. That's the kind of insidious thing. But speaking of uh, insidious Western influences, let's have a listen to this tune. <laughs> That's ornament, Radio Luxembourg. Tell us about that uh, track, Terry. Uh, well, the person who made the song, who sings there, is uh, Gunnar Kraps, who actually became very famous rock star uh, later on. So that was uh, one of his first bands called Ornament. Again, a spiritual reference in it. And so this song is about Radio Luxembourg, and it says that it's a spiritual kitchen of pop life. <laughs> Love it. Um, we had uh, Vladimir Raevsky in here uh, a couple of months ago, the Soviet journalist, and we, uh, Russian journalist, and we were talking about um, Luxembourg and uh, Radio Free Europe and BBC World Service, and he was telling us about the, the huge amounts of, the gigantic amounts of money that was spent in the Soviet Union trying to jam the radio signals. They built these towers all the way around Moscow, spent like, what were the equivalent of hundreds of millions of dollars uh, attempting to block the music out. They definitely did not like that influenced the authorities. 
Certainly, and especially at the at the beginning of the movement, at the late sixties, early seventies. But then again, it's it's like it's strange that the first Beatles songs was released already in the late sixties under one Melodia label. It was a compilation track, and and it was stated as an English folk song. And then uh, already by mid seventies, Melodia began slowly releasing other Western influential uh, music, and uh, and then became a phenomenon of touring rock stars like the the Kundergrabs. So in a way, this um, ban of the rock music, it 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 is true only for some part of time because later on it was already more complex. Sometimes you were your record was released by Melodia and sometimes you were banned to play. But again, most of these bands, their records were not released in Melodia. I mean, uh, Vladimir did say, actually, they were much more worried about the speech content of radio. So th- they, they were bothered about music, too, of course. And, the, the, you know, these, these kind of wild guitar music was, it was an improvisation was seen as unhealthy in some way, in a moral way, as you said earlier. But, um, of course, they were really concerned about the speech part of the radio, the too. Lyrics. Yeah, the lyrics, but also what, whatever, was, whatever other speech was going on between songs and stuff, you know. Um, you talk you show in the film as well the the amazing adaptability of people in you know vandalizing phone well stealing parts from telephone boxes to adapt their acoustic guitars to make them electric uh, and and stealing um we met somebody recently in you gotta Russia. be creative you've got to be creative we met somebody recently in in uh, in Belarus who they used to steal the the sort of PA system which you'd get on the train stations you know the speakers on the train stations steal those to make amplifiers, steal um, uh, bits from telephone booths to, to make the guitars electric, and he even uh, vandalised the school piano to take the strings out to put on his bass guitar, made wow. his guitar into a bass guitar. And they also built their own synthesizers, right. and they were developing all kinds of crazy mechanisms to create effects. Mm. on the sound so people were very very creative and of course the the the, the main issue for the musicians uh, of the soviet era was lack of instruments and lack of recording possibilities it was really like what we have now remained what what i was able to use in the movie or release as a soundtrack of the movie these were some of the miraculous uh, phones it was really like uh, somebody had a relative somewhere or connection somewhere and then they managed to get, let's say, one night in a radio or or one night somewhere to record it. And then this album was never officially released, mm-hmm. but at least we have the tapes. Yeah, and there's a lot of great music in the film. And of course, you have released that wonderful soundtrack uh, record. There's just a couple of uh, copies on vinyl left. Um, it's great stuff. Let's turn to something a bit darker, though, uh, Terry, because the other thing which really stood out for me in the film is that, like, you know, in the West, there were leaders, some leaders sort of emerged in this hippie movement, and this man, this character, Sonny, was one of them. And maybe you could tell us about Sonny, because he it's a rather tragic story in a way, isn't it? But he was very interesting as a character and sort of charismatic. What, what happened with Sonny? What was his story? Well, he was one of the first uh, leaders uh, in in Moscow in the late, emerged in the late sixties, and uh, that was the moment when the hippie movement was not yet politicized. It was not. I mean, the KGB was only beginning to get after them, and so the youth, in a way, had hopes that they can create the space within the Soviet regime. They didn't really want to overthrow the system at the time. They they thought that maybe it's still possible that we can find a way within the system. And uh, then they uh, thought of doing their first public demonstration uh, in Moscow. A couple of thousand hippies came together on the 1st of June. They had their slogans of make love, not war. And as soon as they got there, uh, they got the permission for the demonstration. And uh, and the Sunny, uh, Sonce in in Russian, or the Sunny. So he was the, the leader and he managed to get the permission. And then a couple of thousand kids came together and the KGB buses were already waiting. And I think the important thing is is this this is that he had got permission, which seems extraordinary, but he got permission because it was going to be an anti-Vietnam war demonstration. In other words, it was anti-US government, wasn't it? Not- yeah, it was aligned with the Cold War politics. Yes, right. it, was, it was it was a good call. But in a way, the hippies thought that it's a 
it didn't really matter what it was about. It was also about showing that they are doing something and they are there. And it was a manif- manifestation in a way that, hey, we are hippies and we are going out on the streets. And um, but of course, uh, you know, we cannot r- really tell what what was the real deal there. But I also suspect that the permission was given already with the idea. Okay, so this is a great chance that we can get all the social parasites, all the dangerous element of the society together, take down their addresses and names, and then we have an overview. Who are the bad kids? And that basically uh, was what happened. And then they were visited by the KGB agents and they were the guys who got a uh, invitation to serve armies uh, or or there were threats in from a university side so all these kind of like silent repressions and that meant that after that many kids were like oh that's that's too risky i'm right. not going to deal with that right. and that was the moment when after, you know the this this incident led to this radicalization of the hippies and and it went more underground and it was also more drug driven less talk about politics less intellectual but more like uh, you know just get away from everything political get away from the society so that the society wouldn't disturb us and we wouldn't just disturb the society because it was very risky and you got put in prison and uh, I think you mentioned one person that was in prison that killed himself when he was in prison and uh, but what about Sonny just to finish off his story yeah. what happened then for him I mean of course like again we cannot like really uh, tell exactly but uh, the next summer he was coming to Tallinn and he stayed one of my hippie friends there and uh, he's been telling that uh, like he was a little bit like depressed or disappointed and and kind of shamed ashamed as well because he felt that it was his fault that uh, all this thing ended so badly and uh, and he began began drinking mm-hmm. And he was drinking a lot and a lot and a lot. And then other people who I, I who I met him have told me that yes, like they saw him in the end of the seventies, and he was just bumming some money and and completely drunk and no respect. And and then of course the younger generation of hippies forget about him, and then he he died in a hospital unknown. Mm. He wasn't the only leader that was he. And there's there's another fascinating character in the film because the other big part of uh, hippiedom, I suppose you call it. Um, in the West, was the spiritual aspects of it, this the, the new age, the age of Aquarius, um, looking to the East, um, as in, you know, India and stuff, for spiritual guidance and spiritual inspiration. Uh, and there was the, there's at least one guru who you, you show in the film. Tell us about him. He's fascinating. Uh, Michael Tam, or Sri Rama Michael Tam. Uh, yeah, his story is 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 is, an, is another book in itself. I, I think he was a Estonian born who who left Estonia in the 30s, got his ed- education in the West, and then at some point he had a spiritual turn, and he w- thought decided to go to live in uh, in India in an ashrama, but before he wanted to go by what was now Soviet Union, Soviet Estonia, to say goodbye to his relatives. And as soon as he entered across the border of the Soviet Union, he was arrested. And he didn't want to accept the Soviet citizenship. So basically he remained kind of imprisoned as a person without citizenship inside Estonia. And he was forced to live somewhere in the countryside uh, far from the cities. And then in the middle of the 70s, after he had already developed his philosophical, spiritual theories, written some um, materials down and all his theories about meditation and uh, zero meditation and how to meditate a black hole that would like suck away something that the hippies later used as a, uh, to fight the KGB with, uh, with magic, basically. So the hippies discovered him in 1975 and then he became very popular. A lot of hippies were traveling to see this very spiritual, very uh, strange uh, guy with good aura. That's what people have been telling. And he was a practitioner. So he, they were doing a lot of yoga and meditation and um, and he had some followers, some disciples, until finally these disciples managed to get him out of the country. And that was in the early 80s. And then he w- eventually he died in Boston. He went to America, yeah. Uh, but so he developed his theory or his spiritual uh, uh, tradition or whatever it was from what? I mean, where, where, what, what, how did he how did he become this guru? You know, if he wasn't allowed to leave the country and travel to seek uh, the masters in the East. They say that he was fluent in Sanskrit. Right. 
yeah, he was very, very intelligent person. So we, I can't, I, I don't know exactly what was his background as he arrived in in Soviet Union, but he he already knew plenty, and he wanted to dedicate himself to spiritual path and wanted to travel to India. So, so probably he was stuck there, but he had plenty of literature to work with, and and he began developing his own theory that is really detached from other uh, traditions of philosophy, his own science systems, and basically his core idea was this zero meditation. But when we have this uh, the film screening in in October 23 that you're all very welcome to attend in London, then uh, Vladimir Wiedemann, who was his closest disciple, gonna be there, and he can really tell much more what was the core idea of the of the Michael Tums uh, theory. But I think the, the craziest thing is really that they were meditating to create this kind of black hole, like in the cosmos, this negative energy to suck away the power of the KGB. So maybe, maybe, it's always good to think like why the Soviet Union collapsed. So maybe it was just because these crazy hippies were meditating under a spiral uh, with a crown somewhere in the woods of Estonia and created this black hole that took the power of the KGB away. I'm buying it. I'm buying it. Um, I mean, for sure, it may, 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 may have been one of the things, wasn't it? I mean, in the way that music was one of the things that... Uh, I've of, we've often asked this, you know, what was the role of music in the, in the end of the Soviet era and perestroika? And, um, it seems to have been brought to an end by many things and Part of it was music and people gathering and pressure from all sides. So people meditating in the woods and imagining a black hole into which the KGB was tumbling. I'll buy that. Yes, and it's also it's it's one of these very narrow look at the late Soviet era that oh like everybody were like brainwashed by propaganda. No, it was, there were a lot of alternative milieus, mm. a lot of kind of scenes uh, near the universities, uh, in the woods, uh, in the intellectual scenes in the cities, cafe culture developed, uh, uh, rock concerts. So there were all these kind of scenes that actually. Uh, created this double publics uh, that uh, historians have been speaking that there were what you can say in the media or in out on the street and what you can actually speak about in the cafes or in the kitchen. Speaking of rock concerts, let's have a listen to this. Cherry Garden of uh, Jimi Hendrix, Yuri Morozov. Tell us about that one. Well, Yuri Morozov is definitely a person who is underestimated in the in the Soviet Russian music history. He was this guy who worked uh, worked in a melodia um, in Saint Petersburg, and he built. Uh, he was recording amazing, amazing stuff from late sixties throughout the the seventies. And he recorded himself. He played all the records himself and he never released that stuff. And then uh, only later on, like uh, like people have been discovering what kind of amazing stuff uh, he he created. And that is this album from 1972. And that's very, very hippie spirit. And uh, so... Cherry Garden of Jimi Hendrix, of course, like uh, like the lyrics go that uh, you know Jimi Hendrix is actually not dead, like he's <laughs> like uh, he rose up from the ashes, <laughs> and so it's it's it has like this uh, absolutely amazing hippie spirit. And later on, to was the uh, late seventies, he was creating this uh, very um, 
experimental electronic mm. music also mm. really really cool also and we have one yeah. track in the in the movie as well yeah amazing stuff funny enough about uh jim Hendrix isn't dead when we um were with uh Collie vassin and uh, uh you know he he said i want to show you my my family album which you know as you all know a traditional thing in in russia wasn't it with photographs of your parents and uncles and grandfather and aunt and stuff and uh i was interested to see it because of his long-suffering mother you know <laughs> put up with Collie spending all all his lunch money on beatles uh, uh records and x-ray but uh he, he got the got the book out and opened it up and i was expecting to see his, his dad and his mum but it was all pictures of the beatles mainly just john lennon and in the middle it said it, the big page in the middle which said uh, you know john lennon my dad uh and uh I, you know i'd Obviously, he didn't really think that John Lennon was his father. It was in a metaphorical sense, you know, but um, I didn't really know what to say. So I just said to him, hey, Cole, you know, you must have been absolutely devastated when he died, you know. And he looked at me and said, he's not dead. And uh, Paul and I were like, oh, okay. And, uh, and he said he's living in northern Italy, putting albums out. And he pointed at his top shelf and he had about uh, eight CDs, which which he said were uh, music that Lennon had been releasing over the years from um, his his hideaway in in northern Italy. So um, I said, uh, "Can we hear one?" And he he got one CD down and he he put it on and played a track. And guess what? Sounded exactly like John Lennon. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, there we go. So another crazy story. But um, uh, let's just talk in terms of craziness, uh, Terry, about drugs. We were talking about um, acid, LSD before, but um, in your article, actually, I love that article which you wrote about uh, drugs at the time, and there were some very strange drugs being taken, weren't there? Because, and I think in the film, actually... Uh, your, one of your main characters, I can't remember his name, but he, he, he talks about this, these asthmatic cigarettes. There were these cigarettes that you could buy. That's bizarre, isn't it? To, to help cure your asthma. And they had a way of sort of adapting them, didn't they, to make this psych- psychoactive substance. Just tell us about that. So these cigarettes had uh, various psychoactive plants in it. And so the hippies somehow discovered, we don't know exactly how, but somebody discovered that, oh, if you make a tea... Uh, out of the cigarette, you buy a package, boil it into a tea, then it becomes a very hallucinogenic tea. And there was this one uh, crazy, uh, very, very um, strong, tall, big, uh, wild, uh, hippie guy called Viking in Tallinn. And I don't know why exactly, how come it's possible, but maybe it was possible because it was just the wild Soviet era uh, that he didn't tell uh, Ara that this is a hallucinogenic tea. So they were drinking tea, and uh, and and then at some point, I think it was it was basically a crazy overdoses, and um, and at some point, Ara felt that his lungs were stuck, and uh, I don't know, he almost died. And he also has, of course, this amazing uh, psychedelic hallucinogenic trip that he still remembers in great detail. And he was telling me this story, and the story was actually half an hour long in the movie, three minutes. Uh, but yeah, he remembers everything about it, and in a way it was a life-changing moment for him as well, because later on he started having uh, real issues with his lungs. And now he has this very rare disease that nobody really knows why and how, but basically his lungs are shrinking. And um, so we... Uh, we had a really hard time when we were filming it, but he managed to come out and join, at least trying to join the journey with other protagonist uh, hippies to Moscow on a hippie bus. But he had to turn back because he was not able to do the whole journey physically. And then after that, he was two years, didn't leave his room. Mm. His body is already so weak. Uh, last spring, he was in a hospital. He yeah, like had a very, very critical moment but uh, I think all his friends and our Facebook followers were praying for him and he made it he's, he's still uh, alive but uh, but he's physically very very weak but it's mentally quite, very sharp. It's quite painful in the film actually because he's using these tubes to breathe through isn't he and stuff so you, you, that wasn't connected surely with that experience that he had early on with the asthmatic cigarettes was it or could it have been caused by that? 
I mean, nobody can really tell, mm. but the, that was the way he he presented it to me, mm. and I think it's it's one of the possibilities that he had this uh, uh, this shock in the lungs, uh, some 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 trauma, and then uh, all the things uh, were slowly slowly developing later. He certainly describes his trip in vivid detail. You're, sort of, you're there with him as he's stepping down the, the staircase slowly outside. Um, and other drugs, I mean, so uh, cannabis, easy to get hold of, right? It was, that seemed yes. to be very, very easy to get, to get hold of weed. Yeah, I mean, it was not around as much as maybe in some cities today, uh, but uh, it was around and it was grown in some regions in the Soviet Union and then the travelers were bringing it over and it was shared among friends. And um, so that was, yeah, that was the thing, of course. But then there were like some crazy psychonauts uh, who were also sniffing a cleaning detergent called Sopals that was produced in Riga. And they just discovered it somehow. And it was it became this cult thing in the late 70s to sniff this cleaning detergent that has an active ingredient of ether. And, mm, uh, ether, yeah. and some people say that, oh, yeah, like that was the this uh, like as good as acid or even better yeah it's absolutely amazing isn't it is that how do people discover these things does somebody just go around sniffing stuff i'm just going to go around around my house i'm going to tink things out of the cupboard i'm going to sniff them and see what happens Uh, but i mean you know how did somebody discover that licking a particular toad gives you a psychedelic experience you know did you just go around licking things and (laughs) i I can imagine that there's like some you know colors in a plant or or like this amazing colorful a frog, but um, but like the bottle of sopals, uh, like Soviet design, uh, red. Mm, I don't know. Why would you sniff that? Yeah, exactly. Um, and then of course opium and heroin. Tell us a little bit about that because you get the poppy fields in the in the east, don't they? Yes, and uh, that's like the Vladimir Wiedemann, he's in his memoir book, uh, describes very vividly that he just discovered the poppies. And then uh, next to the Lenin's uh, statue, uh, there was very few poppies this year. And then the next year, there was no poppies at all, <laughs> because he had collected all the poppies and, and used it to make tea. And uh, some of them were also injecting the, the tea. And that was also very dangerous. Many people lost their friends because of that, uh, because it was very difficult to settle the right doses mm. and uh, I think like my take is on that is really that it, it was also all related to this politicization of the movement uh, uh, because like it really it made the movement much more radical because the people just lost hope that there's no mm. point in talking to the regime or, to, or or participating or there was no point in active intervention it was rather that you know we just want to get out of this society as far as we can and then of course drugs was one of the m- ways to create this alternative world and and if you have lost hope uh, in the society then you know yeah you, you just you just do what you you do and what others are doing and you get high and then you'll you die. Yeah, well, particularly with opiates, yeah. it's a sort of way to just escape. And you can imagine, I mean, um, you know, much more so than in the West, how uh, it would feel, how tempting that would be to withdraw because it was dangerous to engage. And also, you know, what chance did you have of making change? You know, it was limited. So you can see, I can definitely see how people would want to withdraw. I suppose that's the other big thing about, the, about hippiedom in the West was that it gave birth to... A lot of political movements. I mean, fem- you know, the feminist movement really emerged uh, from that. The ecology movement, you know, um, emerged from that. Various technological things like Apple computers and stuff also came out of that. So, what about that? Did it? Did uh, was there anything that really started to change in terms of societal thinking? You know, uh, as a result of the hippie movement in the Soviet Union. Well, definitely the mainstream youth culture embraced the Soviet hippie style. Mm. And that is really strange. The late 60s, the long hair on boys was a real, real matter for police. The people were forcefully cutting the hair and there were like newspaper articles about how long hair can you have. And then a couple of years later, mid 70s, you look at the picture in the classroom of uh, high school kids. All the boys have longer hair. And uh, also the hippie style pants, the jeans, the Beatles. It grew into a huge Beatlemania, attracting much wider circuit of people than those who were hippies or identifying with hippies. All the Komsa monkeys were listening to Beatles like crazy. So, and it also had an influence on arts. 
music that I mentioned, animation, amazing with psychedelic animation uh, mm. was made in the 70s in Estonia and as well as in Russia. And so I think like it had this vast influence on the on the on the on the culture. Yeah, I mean that's that's a really good point because I mean if you look at the the way that Krugersall magazine covers changed in the seventies, they became really psychedelic, and there's those as you said, there's those amazing psychedelic animations in 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 the Soviet Union, weren't there? Really, really trippy stuff actually, yeah. and King Zazar and stuff like that. You know, very strange uh, things. So it did start to infiltrate into into the culture in a, in a much more wide way, didn't yeah. it? And of course, with animations, it's just also because that was the safe medium that was where you were allowed to go wild because that was for children so you can play right. around you can fool around so many artists were expressing their psychedelic sensitivity in the children's book uh, illustrations for example mm. and if you look at the soviet children's book they are incredible mm, absolutely amazing yeah we we love we love them um and i think also you know uh, as time was going on i always like to remind people of this is that in many ways of course Soviet society was much more advanced than it was in the West. I mean, for instance, for women in some ways, you know, women, it, you know, went to university, they worked in industry, there were lots of women scientists in the Soviet Union, which was not really true in the West, actually. You know, there was, there were, there was in some respects a much more progressive attitude towards, say, gender, you know. Um, one of the projects we've been involved in, which is releasing the music of Mikhail Televadiev, and he, he scored a... Uh, uh, a TV series in the early 70s called Olga Sergeyevna and Olga Sergeyevna is a marine biologist uh, and I cannot imagine I'm sure there was no TV series made about a woman marine biologist in the West that just wouldn't have happened you know so it, it's it's it isn't quite as straightforward as, as everything was much more sophisticated and progressive in the West and it wasn't that way in the Soviet Union. That's not true, is it? Yeah, that is uh, that is a very interesting point about gender because really, officially, they were empowering women. Mm. But then again, when you look in, in depth, of course, it was a, it was a very misogynist uh, society and all the people, the party leaders were obviously always uh, men. True. And so this... Um, to say that there was a great gender equality, it's uh, it's it's a uh, half true. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah, of course, all the po- the politicians were all men, right? Yeah. yeah. Terry, let's have one more track. Is Yes, the band is called Suk. Uh, it's, Suk. Uh, it's a band from uh, Tartu, uh, from Estonia. And that song was written already in the late 60s. That's what I've heard from the band members. Uh, but uh, their record, uh, they have a whole unreleased uh, album um, that they managed to record within one day session in a, in a radio bus that happened to travel from Tallinn to Tartu. And then they had this one day there and they re- recorded the solo album and that is one of the songs that I love so much. And uh, the the singer is also uh, Alexander Müller who was this uh, very central uh, poetic uh, 
guy who was throwing wild parties in his place. Uh, he had a piano there and people were smoking and dancing and partying. So it was like a very this kind of bohemian intellectual center that uh, occurred around him. And he was this charismatic poet uh, po uh, poet uh, who was the lead singer. And the song is Statistilina, which is basically kind of critiquing the... Uh, I think the bureaucratic and militaristic Soviet world, it was a technocratic uh, state still. Mm, yeah, yeah. I mean, and it's from the album, which is a soundtrack to your film, Soviet. It's a brilliant record. And uh, just tell us about the film then. So um, how long did it take to make and what actually got you going? Why did you make that film? Uh, like I mentioned before, that I was—I uh, I also didn't know about the hippies, but I had a, my own hippie time when I was traveling in my early twenties in South America, and I was robbed, and then I had to survive, and then I met these hippies, and and so I had like something in my spirit about the hippies already when I was teenager. I loved Jim Morrison and their Let's Step Out in the Doors, and I was having my you know dad's jeans and uh, and made some colorful butterflies flies on them so i was definitely like this rebellious bohemian kid uh, as a as a as a teenager already and uh, and then uh, in my masters uh, studies i became interested in memory culture and that's where i was like curious that how come like we don't know much about the alternative stories of the soviet uh, era and i realized that there's a very intellectual and also reasonable reason that uh, we had to deal with the trauma first we had to speak about uh, the crazy stalinist trauma uh, what we were not allowed to speak in the 80s or at least early 80s and so, of course, in the 90s, we were only talking about this bad stuff that was happening in the Soviet Union, but we were not telling the stories of resistance, of creativity, of imagination, of uh, counterculture. And, of course, there was no trace about the Soviet hippies. So, like, when we first approached the... Um, uh, funders to make this movie then uh, my producer was insisting that there needs to be somebody who tells in the trailer that yes I was a hippie because nobody believed that there were hippies even though they lived in the Soviet era because they also didn't know that this movement existed nobody knew I mean only those knew who were inside the movement basically or you had some very vague you know maybe memory that yeah you once saw some weird guys somewhere but like there was no, you know, information. But then Vladimir Wiedemann had published his memoirs. Uh, so that protagonist who lives now in, in London. And so so that book uh, blew my mind. And then I became interested in that. And I I began with the movie. It was six years to do it. Two, uh, one and a half years of editing. Because editing was very, very tough to put all these gener different generations, different locations, different stories together to, to have this like film that holds together because there were so many ways I could go and we had to test everything and finally I still settled with this uh, mostly with the power relation uh, story. Yeah I mean and that's the there's, that's very poignant in the film of course because it's then and now isn't it and um, you know there's, there's still this wonderful meetup on every June the 1st. I guess that's the anniversary of this famous protest where the KGB arrested everybody isn't it? Yeah, of course, like all the, uh, I, I mean, in Moscow, there are still like a couple of hundreds of people going to get there on the 1st of June in the park to play around being uh, celebrating hippie life uh, uh, once a year. But they don't know <laughs> about this 1st of June arrest in 1971. So this kind of link has disappeared. But uh, they say that since late 70s, somehow they began gathering on the 1st of June. Maybe th these people who came there on the 1st of June in 1978 Maybe they knew the link, but then later on uh, uh, this link disappeared, but the tradition remained. And so in, in that film we, we build this, uh, this connection and, and maybe it's true. I hadn't thought of it the way you described it there, but these forgotten memories, these repressed memories in some ways, may, maybe that the, the difficulty and the darkness of the Soviet times has to be dealt with first before you can properly remember and recollect these, these stories. Terry, when or where can people see your amazing documentary, film, movie, uh, expose, Soviet hippies? How can they see it? Ah, oh, that's a good question. Of course, the film is still kind of touring, mm. touring the uh, the festival or events, but it's kind of winding down also a little bit. So basically, we are open for invitations. Great. 
if you want to organize a screening wherever you are, give us an email uh, and, and we'll figure it out. How do they find you? How do people find you? Well, uh, sovietippies.com is the website. Uh, there's also a Facebook group. And my personal email is teriadomistu at gmail.com. Well, let's finish with this track, Vantarel by Jolgus. Jolgus? Jolgus, yes. Tell us about that. So this is probably or supposedly the first psychedelic rock band of the Soviet Union. Of course, we cannot t- tell entirely, but uh, this band was active in 1970. Uh, a little bit over a year because the band was considered too strange, too dangerous, and they were invited to the red carpet for some serious talk, so the Soviet red carpet. And uh, But this song is Yulgus, uh, which is basically um, to be brave. It's about stepping out of the box and uh, and, and doing what you got to do. So I think it's a really, uh, it's a hippie anthem for sure. Terry, thanks so much. Thank you. Well, that's it. The strange story of Soviet hippies. We'll be back next time with more Lost, Forgotten, Half-Remembered Countercultural Stories. This was the Bureau of Lost Culture. I'm Stephen Coach. You can check us out at bureauoflostculture.com. Thanks for listening.